0: Hello and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. I hope you're all having a good week and if not, I hope that I can be a little distraction in all the chaos that is life. Thanks to all of you, my beautiful supporters. This podcast is now sponsored For the past couple of weeks, I've been really sick, and between that and work and the podcast, I have been worn out. With ads like these, it'll give me the chance to actually give my body and my voice a little recovery time next time that happens, and it gives me so much relief knowing that. If you could please support me by using my offer code, SLEEP, and check out the links I share on these ads, that would be phenomenal and i'll be able to continue to deliver you a fresh set of nightmares each week. You can also donate to my patreon. patreoncom sleep. And i was also asked by someone online to restate my p.o. box. You can write to me at Shelby Scott, p.o. box 950246, Mission Hills, California. 91395 0246. Enough chatter. On to the scares. First up this week, I wanted to start with something a little different by Gabrielle Ah of the Stories in the Dark podcast. I'm such a fan of theirs. Please go check them out and follow them on Instagram at Stories in the Dark Podcast. Gabrielle tells me that this is based on a true story. I hope you enjoy The Pig Broker. Everyone in the village knew about Pavo. Pavo, who beat his children just as he did his horses. Pavo, who was never seen without a bottle of something cheap and hard stashed on him somewhere. Pavo the pig broker. When you needed a pig for a wedding or a funeral, you went to Pavo. You ignored the sullen looks of his children and the screams of his horses because Pavo had the only pigs for miles around. Pavo had an infamously high tab at the bar and the liquor store, for people did not need pigs as often as Pavo needed to drink. Pavo's children grew up and his fists grew softer, for even a drunken pig broker mellows with age, but even soft fists can hurt the littlest children, and Pavo, drunk one night on something that could only loosely be called alcohol, went after one of his grandchildren. The child survived, barely. It would always walk with a limp after the beating from Pavo and one of its eyes didn't sit quite right anymore. After that, the child spent a lot of time with the horses who sympathized with the child and who were always gentle when it was around, petting them and cooing and brushing them till they shone in the dark light. The family met not long after that, and they decided they could not risk Pavo being out on his own anymore. He would fallen at night in the street, drunk, and could have been run over. He couldn't be trusted with the grandchildren or his bar tab. The pigs wouldn't go near him anymore. So his children, who had taken over the management of the pig brokering business, and the house, and the finances, and the horses, and everything else Pavo tried to break with his angry fists. His children locked Pavo in a room and chained him to a wall. Pavo was in shock at first, as one does not expect one's children to chain them up, even if. One has been quite a terrible father. He was, after all, the patriarch and the pig broker. Who would people go to for their holiday pigs? Well, they went to his children, of course, all grown, who diversified into chickens and donkeys as well. Pavos screamed and railed against his fate, chained up in the room, but eventually, everyone forgot, and they ignored his screams as they picked up their pigs, for they were used to ignoring things around Pavo's place. Years passed, and then one day, Pavo's eldest son ran into the village, wide eyed, and asked if anyone had seen his father. Pavo had escaped, he couldn't have gone far since he had been chained up in a room for the last few years without much exercise. He had, in fact, gotten a bit fat, eating pig and eggs and chicken, for his children were not cruel, and they fed him well. At first, no one saw Pavo. The whole village was on alert. There were rumors that he had been seen on the outskirts of the village by the farmers, and so the search for Pavo grew wider and wider. The grandchild, with the twisted leg and odd eye, stayed back with the horses, brushing them and talking to them, as it always did these days. Months passed and the villagers slowed and then finally stopped. The search for Pavo. He'd been spotted in further and further away villages. And everyone decided that Pavo must have just gone and found a new life. Somewhere else. Somewhere where no one knew him. His children paid off the last of his drinking debts and tried to breathe easy hoping their father had found happiness at last, far, far away from them. Spring turned to summer, and then summer turned to fall as it does. The villagers went out for the fall harvest, picking apples and fruits with no names, and gathering the gourds and potatoes that they would store for the winter. They took their dogs with them, as always. Dogs are good company. And they would scare off any of the wild creatures that lived outside the village. But the dogs were distracted. They barked and ran about. Frustrated, a group of villagers let the dogs run, and they followed, hoping the dogs would get this out of their systems. The dogs led them through the woods, through a clearing and down a small hillside that led to the creek. They stood and barked and barked, foam flying from their mouths, eyes wild, and then the villagers saw what had so unsettled their dogs, bones. A pile of bones in the forest picked clean and gnawed on the bones of a man. There was a small pile of clothes, neatly stacked and folded, crawling with bugs and fraying from the spring rains and the summer heat, mildewing next to the bones. In the pants pocket, they found a wallet, canvas, with velcro holding it closed and inside, Pavo's ID. They collected all the bones, sifting through the dirt and the mud to make sure they didn't miss any. And they sent them off to the nearest large town. Then they returned to their village, put away their harvest and waited for any news. The grandchild who never spoke Except to the horses, brushed and whispered and seemed to stand a little straighter. Listener, you know what they found. They were Pavo's bones, gnawed and chewed by so many teeth, large and small, square and sharp. The strangest thing, the thing that bothered the villagers the most, was that half of the vertebrae from Pavo's spine was missing, along with the bones of his little fingers. Pavo had been dead almost since the day he went missing. And then something spent months eating him, chewing his fat, gnawing on his bones and sucking on his marrow... something. This next story is by author Wellington Hutzler. You'll remember his very popular story, You and Me. Here is Crocodile Tears. Most of us have had close calls as children. When my son was six, he fell off his bike, hit his head, and was brain dead for a while before he came back. My sister nearly drowned in our community pool when we were young. But what I'm about to tell you is unlike anything you've heard before. I'm talking about the summer of 58. I was 10 years old and walking home from a Boy Scouts meeting. I can recall at the time I was excited about getting my not tying badge earlier in the day. I remember I was admiring my badge while I quietly walked the empty streets of my suburban neighborhood with the sun setting in my peripheral vision. And then something caught my attention. I could hear a voice calling to me from one of the houses. I turned my head and saw Mr. Amelio standing in his front doorway. I had grown up in my neighborhood and gotten to know the people around me over the years. Mr. Amelio, however, had only moved into his house a few months before, so I didn't know him nearly as well. What immediately had startled me was the very frantic expression on his face. Something was clearly wrong. He pointed at me and shouted, You, young man, you're a Boy Scout, right? Don't you know CPR? I froze with anxiety. I knew a little bit of CPR. I had my badge for it, but... I wasn't sure if I could remember my training. I wanted to help people, though. I had a dream of becoming a doctor, so I nodded my head. Thank God, I need your help, it's my wife. I just found her on the kitchen floor, and she's not breathing. Please help her while I call 911. Please. I was about 30 feet from him when I began to hesitantly stepped closer but while I was walking I couldn't get a certain uncomfortable thought out of my head I had watched Mr. Emilio enter and exit his house for weeks and never saw anyone with him until that moment I had assumed he was alone hurry please She needs you, he cried. I stopped in my tracks. Something about the situation seemed wrong. I had goosebumps covering my body. But I wasn't sure if it was because a woman really was in danger or because I was. Mr. Amelio began to sob and plead with me. Please, please. Please, please, she's going to die! Do something!" He could barely get the words out in between sobs. I started to get stricken with a heavy sense of guilt. I remembered the house fire from five years prior. My little cousin had been playing with matches. It got out of hand faster than I could even comprehend. My cousin tried to grab onto my hand, but I ran away without him. I was afraid. we both were. And when the flames died down, they found my cousin's tiny scorched body cowering in a closet. Mr. Amelios seemed genuine, and I visualized my cousin's body being carried out on a stretcher, blanketed by a sheet. So I kept walking. My body was urging me to turn back with each step I took, but I had to know if his wife really needed help. As I crept closer and closer to the door, Mr. Emilio's face grew more frightened and distraught. I knew it was a stressful situation, but it was odd how he seemed to grow more nervous the closer I got. I glanced at the open doorway he was standing in and stopped nearly five feet from him. The growing, unsettling feeling in my body was practically a foreboding aura surrounding me at that point when I briefly saw someone in the house, standing around the corner from the door and trying to hide closer to the wall. That moment, I knew I had to get out of there and Mr. Amelio saw the cogs turning in my head. His eyes grew wide with panic, and he stepped forward and tried to grab my arm. I jumped back and started to sprint home. I could hear Mr. Emilio screaming behind. Come back! Don't let her die! How could you do this to us? Please! The run home was practically a blur to me but I know it was the hardest I've ever pushed my legs in my life. When I reached my front door, I failed to turn the knob properly and simply ran to the door. My poor, confused mother didn't know what to expect when she found me sitting on our front porch, crying and hyperventilating. My father called the police once they were finally able to understand me, explain what happened. What happened next is still a little vague to me to this day. I made a point never to learn the details or look at the pictures that were taken. When the police busted into the house, they found what was left of both Mr. Amelio and his wife. To my understanding, There was so much gore and viscera that it was difficult to determine what actually happened. His wife's body had been decomposing for longer so they knew she had been killed either the night or the morning before. The only specific thing I can remember about the crime scene is being told years later that Mr. Amelio's organs were never found. And his torso, which looked like a hollowed-out jack-o'-lantern, was found right by the door that I almost walked through. I never found out who or what was waiting for me around the corner from the front door, but I know it was there. And whatever it was, the sight of pure terror that I could see on Mr. amelio's face was enough to change me for life. I gave up on my dream of becoming a physician and became a mortician instead. It's quiet and I enjoy it. The dead don't lie. The dead don't scheme. The dead don't frighten me. Before we move on to our last listener submission of the evening, I wanted to read to you a story from history. I've always had an interest in nautical ghosts, namely ghost ships, so I'm going to read to you the tale of the Sarah. I had never heard of this ship before. It's not as popular as, say, the Mary Celeste or the Lady Bond. but it's got a love triangle and some ghosts. What more could you ask for? But first, a word from our sponsors. Ghost ships, in the mythology of the sea, are almost as plentiful as barnacles on a rock. One of the most celebrated is the Phantom Schooner of Harpswell, which was seen by many people, usually in the late afternoon, fully rigged and under sail. A breathtaking sight, though apt to vanish without warning, in a shimmer of light, or a sudden rising of fog. This vision has been immortalized in the poem The Dead Ship of Harpswell by John Greenleaf Whittier, whose opening lines are as follows. What flecks the outer gray beyond the sundown's golden trail, the white flash of a seabird's wing, or gleam of slanting sail? The period around 1812 was a splendid time for industrious young men to make a legitimate fortune on the high seas. A couple of boys, barely into their twenties, could prosper trading cod and lumber for the rum, molasses, and coffee of the Indies, which was precisely the career George Leverett and Charles Jose envisioned when they set out from Portland, Maine. Their destination was the Sewell Boatyard in South Freeport, and their mission was to arrange for the building of their own new vessel. However, shortly after arriving in South Freeport, they met the lovely Sarah Sewell, fell violently in love with her, and out of sorts with each other, perhaps because of his Portuguese blood Jose pursued her more hotly, though in the end it was George Leverett she preferred. After a bitter argument during which Charles tried to hurl George into the Royal River, the friendship between the two men ended. Charles disappeared and George proceeded with construction of the ship. When she was finished, he appropriately named her Sarah and prepared for his wedding to Sarah Sewell. Ill fortune arose on every side. At first, there were strange obstacles in the wedding preparations. Then, Captain Leverett found it oddly difficult to line up a crew. Still, he was a determined young man, and at last, with his bride in his house and a crew on his ship, Leverett sailed into Portland harbor to take on cargo for the West Indies. At the same time there arrived a curious black craft which flew no flag and was outfitted with a cannon. The ship was the Don Pedro Salazar and her captain was none other than Leverett's former partner and romantic rival, Charles Jose. Much like a storm cloud on the horizon, the Don Pedro trailed the Sarah south. As the voyage progressed, the Sara's crew grew more and more uneasy and petitioned Captain Leverett to head for Nassau to report the menacing pursuer to the British Admiralty. He never reached the harbor. As soon as the Don Pedro saw what course Leverett was taking. She opened fire, killing all but Leverett, and severely damaging, though through some miracle, not sinking the unarmed Sarah. Still blinded by jealousy and seeking murderous revenge, Jose could have tortured the survivor in a variety of traditional methods. However, Jose, after looting the ship, chose only to tie Leverett to the foot of the Sarah's main mast and head him out to sea. It was then that Leverett experienced an extraordinary phenomenon. Helpless as he was, and facing certain death and destruction on an unmanned and shattered vessel, he still was possessed by a strange notion that the ship was under control. Indeed, the dead crew began to rise up and take their posts one by one. Sails were set, and the ship's course was turned toward home. Captain Leverett, at this point, understandably lost consciousness. On a bleak November day, people on Potts Point saw a fully rigged yet tragic wreck sailing with uncanny accuracy along the unmarked channel. Suddenly, the ship came to a full stop without benefit of an anchor. A pale and silent crew lowered an apparently unconscious man into a boat, rowed him ashore, and laid him on a rock, his logbook beside him. Without even the squeak of an oarlock, the ghostly sailors returned to the ship just as a heavy fog suddenly blanketed the harbor. When it had lifted, the ship was gone. The unconscious man was soon recognized as George Leverett, and it is said that he recovered at least enough to relate this tale though he surely never went out to sea again. The last sighting of the Sarah was in the 1880s, on a crystalline summer afternoon. A guest seated on the piazza of Harpswell House looked seaward towards the horizon in time to see a wondrous vision, a great schooner under full sail, her canvas gilded in the sun was heading slowly for the harbor. He summoned a friend, but when they looked again, the ship had vanished. Believers say that the magnificent wreck and her ghostly crew, weary from wandering, had reached home port for the last time. Our final story of the night was submitted by a listener who wished to remain anonymous. I once saw an episode of some HGTV show where a woman who was buying a house had a fear of stained glass. I thought it was ridiculous at the time. How can you be afraid of something so beautiful? Well, if she had ever come across any stained glass, like the kind in our next story I finally understand it was a difficult breakup but the right thing to do Max and I hadn't been right for a long time he was a partier always out with his friends I was a homebody ready to settle down and begin our lives together. We coasted for weeks, months, years without addressing the issue, but finally we made the call. I found the new apartment, packed up my things, and moved out. It was a gorgeous place, the new apartment on the first floor in an old Victorian style building with a front entrance on a quiet side road and a back door leading down a small rickety staircase to my own off-street parking. It reminded me of the Brooklyn brownstones from the romantic comedies I used to distract myself while Max was out with his friends. But this wasn't New York or even Boston. Boston. I decided I had to leave the city when Max and I were over. This was a small town in New Hampshire. Quiet. Sweet. New. Mine. Nestled cozily in the small town, the huge bay window in the living room of the apartment looked out on a quiet street. Across the road was a small green with benches perfect for... First dates and first steps. Standing in the window looking left, you could just about see the main road with the quaint, old-timey shops. The local pharmacy marked the end of my line of sight, ensuring that everything would be all right in neon letters. To the right, the road carried on until an intersection forced you to choose your path of sight. Nothing special. Another crossroads, another modernization. I preferred to look left. Above the window was a stained glass panel, made up of three panes. My favorite part of the apartment and the very reason I had chosen this over all the others I had seen. The outer panes of glass were made of a circle inside multicolored checks. Blue, purple, and red cast glorious shadows in the high sunshine that marked autumn in New England. The middle panel had a similar checked pattern, but in the center of the panel was the side profile of a young woman. Looking left, her dark hair was tied up in a neat bun, and she wore a feathered hat with flowers that perfectly matched her hair. Her dress was Victorian with light-colored collars and ruffles, and she was dripping in jewels. Big ruby earrings and a gold necklace. Her youthful face was smooth. Her eyes closed and a small smile played on her pale lips. Harriet, I called her. I hadn't lived on my own for a long time. Max and I met when we were just out of college, and I was nearly 30 now. The apartment seemed so big and empty compared to the place Max and I had shared, so I would often sit in the living room, taking comfort and Harriet watching over me as I flicked through the television or had dinner at the table I pushed under the window so I could look out over the street. Sometimes I would just sit at the table and watch the people go by. It was a quiet life but I loved that it was mine. One night, as I had finished my salad and was enjoying the view, I noticed a young woman standing on the corner of the main road and my road, looking at the apartment. She was dressed in a white cotton gown with small slippers and long, dark hair falling loosely down her back. The street was quiet, but the few people out didn't seem to notice her. I was frustrated. Why was no one asking this girl if she was okay? She looked sad and lonely, and she was just staring. I couldn't shake the feeling that she looked desperately familiar to. There was something about her that I was sure I had seen before. I kept looking down and back, expecting her to be gone, but every time she was still there. Staring with the blue light from the all-right pharmacy, coloring her white dress. Eventually I cleaned up my plate and went to the kitchen to wash the dishes. As I was brushing my teeth before bed, I decided to go back to the window and see if she was still there. Sure enough, the girl was still in the corner, staring at my apartment. Poor girl, I thought. She must be so cold. But I put it from my mind as I curled up in bed, alone. The next day, after I came home from a long, tiring day of work, I dumped my bag in the living room and spun towards the kitchen to grab a drink. As I did... The stained glass window caught my eye, or rather, Harriet's eyes caught my eye. They were open. A little pinprick of blue in the center of the pane indicated that Harriet was now looking straight out to the old main street. How hadn't I noticed this before? I could have sworn... That her eyes had always been closed. There must have been something blue behind the window when I moved in that camouflaged her eyes and made them look closed, I decided. (laughs) Stained glass windows don't change. I put the matter out of my mind. Or, at least I tried. I ordered some takeaway and sat on the sofa that evening enjoying low main and trashy reality TV. It was Friday, I was tired, and I couldn't shake my consternation at the change in the stained glass window. I kept trying, desperately, to put it from my mind. After finishing dinner and realizing that I probably should hide the evidence of my indulgence, from whom I didn't know, I tied up the garbage and walked outside. I looked out to the left as I lifted the lid of the trash can, and then I saw her. She was a few houses nearer than before, but she was unmistakable. Long hair, white dress, slippered feet, only this time she wasn't alone. Standing next to her was another girl, her blonde hair lying in two messy braids over a gown very similar to the first girl's. She was standing in a puddle, but she didn't seem to notice. This time, the girls weren't staring at my apartment on the first floor, however. They were staring straight at me. I slammed the lid on the garbage can as quickly as I could and ran upstairs. I double-locked the door behind me and closed the curtains on my living room window without looking down. I reached for the phone to call Max and realized I couldn't. But even if I could, what would I say? Max, there are two girls standing on the street staring at me. He'd probably tell me to ask them if they were okay if they needed help. He was always so compassionate, but there was something about these girls that was sinister. The way they just stared, and the way it seemed that no one else could see them. It was all so eerie. So instead, I sat on the sofa and watched QVC for hours trying to rationalize my fears. There was nothing to be afraid of. They were probably just bored young girls from the town playing a joke on the new resident. That must be it, I told myself. It's probably some new social media trend, I thought. Eventually, I fell asleep and woke up, only when the whirring of a 30% off blender broke my fitful rest. I staggered to bed and passed out again, alone. The next day, Saturday, was bright and sunny. I felt so much better than the night before, scolding myself for ever having been afraid. It had been silly to be so nervous over a stupid trick some locals were playing on me. God, they must be bored here, I thought. To have so much time to just stand on a street and stare? I chuckled over my morning coffee as I commended their commitment to the cause. Show that commitment to your SATs, girls, and you'll go far, I muttered to myself. It was time to get my head in the game anyway. That night, I was having my first date since Max, with a guy I met at work. Eli was the charming IT assistant. bit young, but probably a good rebound. I was cooking him dinner at my apartment and needed to pick up some ingredients, so I got ready and left the house. As I walked down my road, wrapping myself up tight against the chilly autumn air, I passed the spot where the girls had stood last night. I couldn't help but stop, but there was nothing special about this spot. Pavement, sidewalk, the last remnants of the puddle, a few crisp leaves, and a Kit Kat wrapper. I don't know what I was expecting, but whatever it was wasn't there. I didn't even bother to stop on the corner outside the all-right. I knew there would be nothing to see. I popped into the local green grocer and grabbed some ingredients. Pasta, check, sauce. Check. Cheese. Check. Garlic bread, onion, salad. A bottle of Pinot Noir for good measure. Not that he'll notice, I thought, but at least I'll enjoy it. As I went to the till to pay, the cashier stopped me. Hello, darling. You're the new lady moved in on Oak Street, aren't you? He said. His New Hampshire drawl reminded me I was back in the place I had grown up. He was a wrinkly old man with hair sprouting out of his nose and ears, almost as if he was stuffed with white straw. He had warm eyes, though, and I immediately liked him. I am indeed. Moved in a few weeks ago, I replied. Lovely place, it? I'm glad they finally found someone to run it. The last people only made it two months, and the lady before, I'd say about two weeks. Debbie! He called, turning around to call back into the store. How long did Janine stay on Oak Street? Yeah, about two weeks. Apparently, Debbie confirmed his recollection. Oh, I said. Do you know why? No idea, love. There's stories of Oak Grove, but I won't bore you with that. Plus, you're far too smart to believe in ghosts or spirits. City girl like you? No way. That's 27 60 darling. I gave him the cash and thanked him, leaving the little green grocer and heading into the bright cold morning. Why didn't the realtor mention this when I was looking at the property? Why hadn't I looked up the history of the apartment and its previous tenants before moving in? Max would have done that. Once again, I found myself thinking of Max, and I decided I needed to put the matter from my mind and focus on tonight. I was excited to see Eli, and I wanted to keep my head in the game for that evening. Eli arrived at 6.30pm as promised. He had brought a bottle of wine himself, but as I suspected, it was clearly the cheapest he could find. I tried to find this endearing rather than unattractive. I gave him the tour of the apartment and we sat on the sofa with a glass of my wine each. Start with the good stuff, always. Conversation was easy and Eli was sweet. He was funny and charming with excellent flirtation skills. I could feel myself relaxing around him. At about 8, I realized I should probably put the pasta on and reheat the sauce I made earlier, so I went to the kitchen. Erica? I heard Eli say from the living room. What's up with those girls? I grabbed a tea towel to dry my hands and walked back to the living room. Three houses down, by the edge of the green across the street, stood four girls. The two from last night were back. Their hair the same, their clothes the same, their stares the same. This time, however, they had two more girls with them. These girls were clearly twins, with curly dark hair and mousy faces, but the same white gowns. All four girls were looking straight at me. They weren't moving or even blinking. The chilly autumn air blew their dresses around their ankles, but they didn't seem to feel the cold. They just stood there, staring. Seriously, Erica, did you piss off the local Amdram society? Like, what is with them? It's a Saturday night. Go party or bed or something. Eli laughed, but I couldn't join him. Suddenly the timer on the oven went off and I snapped back to reality, heading to the kitchen. As I whipped around, I noticed Harriet. Or rather, I noticed Harriet's lips. Her pale, small smile was suddenly bright red and deeply sinister. It was a sneer, not a smile now. Eli followed my gaze and lifted an eyebrow. Bit creepy, he remarked. Just a little, I tried to say. Let's close those curtains. When I came back after plating up, Eli was sitting at the table with the curtains closed. We enjoyed our dinner and conversation, but I was desperate to look outside. I forced myself to look at the cute guy in front of me. His green eyes, curly dark hair, slight stubble. Eventually, my attention was back on the date, and I enjoyed myself, right through to the raspberry cheesecake. We joked about what our colleagues would say on Monday, and (laughs) how the gossip would spread in the office. Eventually, it was time to say goodnight, and I walked Eli to the front door. The blood pounded in my ears with every step down the stairs, and it wasn't just the wine. I was desperately hoping, praying that the girls would be gone when I opened the door to let Eli out. I grabbed the handle and let in the cool night air. As I hugged Eli, I looked over his shoulder out to the street. My heart sank. They were still there. We broke apart and Eli turned to leave. They're still here. What troopers, he said. Oi, ladies, get a hobby. He yelled to the group, but they didn't react. He shrugged at me, gave me a flirty smile, and walked away. As I got back into my apartment to clean up, my phone buzzed. Had a great time, minus the girls, the text from Eli read. Let's definitely do it again. I smiled to myself, texted back, and didn't look out the window again that evening. My head was so full of wine and first date emotions that it was easy to push the anxiety from my mind. I decided I would do the dishes the next morning and went straight to bed. I woke up with a heavy head and went to the kitchen, groaning as I realized how much washing up I had to do. I checked the time on the oven and got a shock. It was 3 p.m., I hadn't slept this late since college. I normally called my mom on Sundays at 1pm and had several missed calls on my phone. I decided to abandon the dishes once again in favor of my daughterly commitment and walked to the living room as I dialed my mom's number. She picked up and immediately scolded me for missing our standing appointment. As we talked, I opened the curtains on the big bay window. I gasped and dropped the phone. Harriet's sudden red lips were now dripping down the stained glass pane. Her gold necklace had red dye throughout it and her light dress had drips of red all down it. She was still staring out to the left with her blue eyes but her look was even more sinister than the night before. She looked wild, angry, terrifying. I was frozen for how long, I, I don't know. Hello, Erica. Stop ignoring me. I know you don't want to talk about it, but are you really ready to date? I heard my mom's voice yelling from the floor, but I had dropped the phone. I replied sheepishly, I wasn't ignoring you, it's just... But I couldn't bring myself to explain it. I thought the stained glass window in my living room was murderous. I was terrified because some girls were playing a trick on me every night. She would probably just have told me I had too much to drink. Instead, I just let her tell me how to live my life and quietly close the curtains. After hanging up, I showered and left the apartment, going for a long walk and not returning until it was nearly dark. The dishes were still there when I got back, mocking my laziness. I finally put some music on, rolled up my sleeves, and tackled the now unpleasant-smelling pile. I tried to listen to the music, but all I could think of was if those girls would be outside tonight. I tried to watch a movie, but couldn't focus. I put on some trashy reality TV, QVC, even texted Eli, nothing worked. I found myself staring at the closed curtains, desperate to take a peek, but terrified of what I might see. I wasn't tired at all, but at 10pm I told myself I had to get to bed, to be ready for work the next morning. I laid in bed, wide awake, staring at the door to my bedroom. My heartbeat quickened progressively as I thought about who or what was probably out on the street at that very moment. Eventually, my heartbeats were so painful that I had to get up and check. I shook from head to toe as I walked slowly, purposefully to the living room. I peeled back one of the curtains, not daring to look up at Harriet, and turned my gaze left down the road. To my elation, I didn't see anyone, but then I turned my head and realized, She was right outside my apartment building. Standing at the gate of the pathway leading to the building was the first girl I had seen. The familiar-looking dark-haired girl in white. I couldn't tear away my gaze. Looking close at her face, I saw something red had run from her mouth and I immediately realized how I recognized her. It was Harriet. Her piercing blue eyes looked directly at me and for the first time the girl moved. She smiled ever so slightly as she saw me looking. I was transfixed but I wondered Where were the others? As if in answer to my thought, as I was still staring at Harriet, I heard the lock on my back door click. A breeze swept through my open bedroom door and played around my ankles. Harriet's smile grew wider. We both knew where they were and I realized I was in my apartment, but I was no longer alone. Thanks for listening. This week's Patreon supporters and those who I owe so much thanks and gratitude for are Kelly Economon, Matilda Moody, Bren Call, and Erica Caitlin Pearson. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Remember to send your scary stories to scaryutosleep at gmail.com. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scareyoutosleep, or you can follow me at Shelby B. Scott. Join the Facebook group to discuss each week's episode with fellow listeners. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Do you feel depressed and listless? Do you find social interactions exhausting or terrifying? Do you or someone you know have dark thoughts echoing your mind on a regular basis? Don't worry, we do too. I'm Chris. And I'm Lindsay, and we're the hosts of How Are You Holding Up? A podcast by the depressed, for the depressed. We aren't doctors, therapists, or anything of the sort. We just have depression and anxiety. And want to talk about it. So come and join us on a mental health adventure wherever you download your podcasts. And let us know,
1: how are are you holding up?
0: up?